This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas and connect it back to older films in the same genre, filmmaker, or just generally in the same vibe and, uh, and you know, watch things we haven't seen in a long time or things we've never seen and take you along on the ride. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer, uh, a blogger. Uh, I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere. And uh, you can find me online uh, anywhere. <laughs> Just Google me. Um, and then, Karsten, today we're doing something a little bit different for a change. Yeah, that's right. We are off the shelf today. We are just looking into our libraries and choosing items, uh, films that uh, we like uh, individually, personally, and showing them to the other. And uh, today's collection are all thrillers. So that's, that's what we're aiming for. So in a project we're calling Off the Shelf, Volume One. This is kind of more in the vein of uh, our great movies episodes, where we look at uh, we were looking at Roger Ebert's great movies list um, and and picking titles that were unfamiliar to us and then exploring them in depth in one way or another. This time around, uh, we're looking at our own personal, I guess, great or movies that kind of appeal to me lists by uh, by going to each other's uh, video shelves because, of course, we're still. Um, heavily anchored by our physical media and uh, picking titles off each other's uh, shelves. And and in a weird way, and there, it was really meant to be completely random, and, and somehow we wound up with uh, four thrillers, each with a kind of a singular star who's doggedly pursuing some sort of end. And uh, they all sort of, t- this is completely subconscious, but they all kind of uh, tie together thematically in a lot of ways. I feel like really this speaks to our interest. I I, I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for myself here, Stephen. I love thrillers. I love these, oh, me too. these uh, uh, genre pictures where there's a lot of suspense and you don't know the direction it's going. And you, uh, you know, you managed to get into the story, into the head of a, of a desperate character, um, you know, and and uh, these are some of my favorite movies through the years. Uh, and I've I've uh, I'm glad we've chosen these this this week because, I, you know, these are I can revisit them or I can discover new ones all the time, anytime. Uh, and uh, frankly, there there aren't that many new ones that are that great. So when one comes along, I definitely uh, I'm really happy to be able to spend some time and, and watch it. Now, of course, you have a deeper, heavier, more larger lex- uh, collection of films on your shelves. Um, so I was really happy to be able to go in there and find a, f- a couple that I had not seen before. But I felt like it was more of a challenge for you <laughs> to look at my shelf, which is not quite as expansive. But I was really pleased with the two films that you chose. Yeah, I, I have a little more of a scattershot <laughs> approach to, you know, the, some, sometimes I just buy something because I'd heard about it. Or want, you know, it, it may not be a movie I necessarily have a tie to to begin with and uh, just something I want to see and it doesn't show up in streaming or, or any other or at the library or any other uh, way I might uh, come across it and I, I you know I gotta put my money where my my eyes are I guess and, and fork over for them so there's a lot of you know flotsam and jetsam I think in my my movie collection you know for better or for worse I, I like those little nooks and crannies from time to time um, but uh, but it, it was cool going through yours and, and finding some some fairly current titles you know from the last 
five or six years or so um, that are things I've been wanting to catch up with. And, yeah. uh, and when we found films uh, randomly, again, one from they're each from all from different decades, which I, I yes. like about our, our choices. Um, but uh, yes, uh, you started with now we're going completely out of order here in terms yes. of chron- chronology, which is another break from tradition. My tire sells to time. <laughs> the tyranny <laughs> of time. Exactly. Um, you chose Locke from 2014. Now, this is a film when it came out. I it was sort of peaking in terms of my interest in its lead, uh, Tom Hardy, uh, my interest in his work. He, he had done a lot of great films. I was really into him, and I was thinking, oh, this guy is going to be a huge star, which is, in fact, what's kind of happened. He has now tied his fortunes to a franchise, Venom, which is was not a movie I particularly liked. But, it's but getting a sequel. It's getting a sequel, <laughs> and it was a huge hit, so there you go. But, you know, I think most people know who Tom Hardy is, either from Mad Max, or Inception, uh, any number of films where he has starred in or has been a supporting role in. Um, yeah, don't I think, forget Bane. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I think people <laughs> yes. maybe have saw him first, most people saw him first in the final Star Trek Next Generation film, Nemesis, which was not a hit um, and a little bit disappointing all the way around. He was the villain in the film as uh, a Jean-Luc Picard's um, clone, and uh, he was intense. He was young. He had a lot of energy, but uh, it wasn't. It just didn't work. And he kind of vanished. He went back to British television for a while and British independent film before he started to do things like Bronson, and uh, and he started to get noticed again. And casting agents and directors started to use him. And he was very. All of a sudden, he he became he sort of actualized in a way that he hadn't previously. And um, yeah, and, and, you know, he is really one of the most watchable leading men in Hollywood right now and uh, and continuing to be. Apparently, he's going to be in a, uh, a biopic, um, an Al Capone biopic coming soon, which I haven't heard any information on in terms of release dates. Maybe it's over the winter. Yeah, um, there are some photos floating around of him in makeup uh, as an older and kind of losing it to dementia era. Yeah. Um, Al Capone. So I, I'm curious. It seems like weird casting to me, but... Yeah, um, but he's he's a really uh, a powerful presence. He's also had his own television series, uh, Taboo, and he guested on Peaky Blinders, which uh, is a is a series that was developed and and at least co-founded, co-authored by Stephen Knight, who is the director of Locke. Now, Stephen Knight's another filmmaker who has had a sort of interesting career. He has done he's as a screenwriter, he's been responsible for Eastern Promises and a. Uh, a little scene Jason Statham film that I like called Redemption, which is also known as Hummingbird, depending on what market you're in. Uh, he also did Allied, a film I didn't like as much. Uh, this year's Serenity, was, which was something of a bomb. Um, yes. and uh, Weird choice. Weird choice, yeah. But I think what um, Knight does particularly well is kind of a noirish crime drama. I think that's where he's at his best. Uh, in 2014's Locke, he casts... Tom Hardy as a uh, a Birmingham construction manager, a guy, he's, I think, Welsh. He's got a little bit of a Welsh accent, which, uh, uh, you know, makes me think uh, of, well, I guess, actors like Richard Burton and Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins, Hopkins a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I think, I mean, I, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that Hardy might be the sort of, like, direct descendant of those kind of actors. Like, he's got that kind of grit and intensity to him. Yeah, um, I definitely think he's doing, of Hopkins in his kind of measured 
controlled way of speaking in this film. I mean, it's 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 a very different character than what we've seen him play in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very different kind of film. Yes. Since you were discovering it, uh, Stephen, can you, would you care to to tell people what it's kind of what's going on here? Well, I I you know I knew it was Tom Hardy in a car for an hour and. 25 minutes or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It, but it, it just it just zips by. Like, it's unbelievable how, you know, you see him getting in. He works on a, he's working on a construction site. He's like the, the manager of a construction site. And we see him getting in the car at the start of the film. And he never leaves the car. Um, and uh, it's just a series of, of phone conversations as he's trying to get to London um, for reasons that at first we're not sure of. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, it, it, the, he's, he's managing this huge project that's going to be one of the largest concrete pours ever in Europe, some massive uh, tower block or something that, that they're building. And it's, it's his life's uh, dream. But at the same time, he's stuck in this moral quandary of something that's happening in London that's just going to turn his whole life upside down. So he leaves work and, and tells them that he's, he, he's not going to be able to be there for the, the big pour of the concrete and his his um you know his manager is freaking out his assistant is freaking out on the all on the phone you never see another human face i don't think over the course of the of the thing and his his family you know his kids are want him to come home so they can watch the big soccer match um and uh they don't understand why he's going to london and then he's got to talk to his wife and talk about it. and it's funny I don't, I don't even know how much i want to talk about the reasons behind why he's doing what he's doing but he's 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 a guy who who is very tightly wound, who who's lived his life by the book, very rigid, very controlled, and then uh, the one mistake he's made in his life has basically thrown a complete hand grenade into everything, and uh, you know he he has this kind of strict moral code, and it's telling him to to get to London even though family and work require that he stay home, and um, it's you know the the war that's going on inside of his head is. You know the psychological battle and the pressure that he's under is uh, is just phenomenal. And Hardy, you know, is you know, well, he's trying to maintain this controlled surface. You can just feel him, just the the turmoil underneath is is, is really palpable throughout the film. Yeah, and and uh, you know, if you describe this to someone, say it's a movie about a guy in a car, you might not think that this is something with a lot of. Uh, excitement, but boy, the suspense is off the chart. Uh, I felt like um, partly that's because the film is so good with its sound design, creating other spaces. Like we don't, we don't ever, as you mentioned, we don't ever see anybody, but we hear the voices of Olivia Coleman, Ruth Wilson, Tom Holland, like some yeah. some actors who have become in recent years since this film has come out much more prominent. Yeah. But Andrew they, Scott yeah. plays his assistant and is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but and you really get even though you're you never see where they are, their voices and their uh, circumstances are so vivid that it feels like you actually. I mean, in my head, when I think back to the film, I think about those characters as. as being as vivid and as intense as the one that's on screen. Uh, Knight also spends some time um, trying to, in this exercise in suspense, constantly shifting focus to bring us into the car and into the state of mind. Um, you know, we, we this is one unchanging location moving through space, but it's not about claustrophobia the way that Buried or Phone Booth were to no. other other movies that have some kind of parallels. It's about the journey and and you don't, you know, the, the camera swoops around the car, it's in the car, but we really feel like we are in uh, Locke's head. And, you know, the question I guess I have when I 
talk to people about it is, is would this have worked as well if it wasn't Tom Hardy in that seat? I mean, that's partly his gift as an actor is bringing something that is you can't take your eyes off him. And in this film, you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally I think I wonder if this would work on the stage because obviously it's confined to one space and, um, you know, they've got the other, the other voices could be off stage or whatever. And I guess it would work. But but cinematically, with the, with the different ways he the night has of framing the car and the interior and the, the highway and the, the, the signs zipping by and everything like that, it does. You know, it gives it this. I mean, it does have this sort of constant forward momentum. Uh, and uh, I, we, I mean, we called it a thriller, but there's no crime. There's no ticking time bomb, as it were. There is something happening that yeah. he has to, to get to London for. But yeah. but it's uh, it's a different kind of thriller. It's it's psychological, but it's not, you know, a cliched, you know, terrorist with a bomb or a man with a knife behind a curtain or anything like that. It's, um, you know, it's it's a different, a uh, whole different level. Yeah. And the stakes are high. I mean, in his personal life, and certainly as we understand the reasons why he's doing what he's doing, which you mentioned how he's tightly wound and how he always follows the rules. And in some ways, he's kind of justifying his decision making because it it still cleaves to sort of his rules about what's right and wrong in life. And he feels like having done what he's done, he has to, he, this is the path he must take, even if it means, as you say, he's going to throw a hand grenade into every other part of his life, including his response responsibilities to this massive uh, construction project, as well as responsibilities to his wife and family. Um, you know, and it uh, there are times when it reminded me a little bit of a Martin Scorsese picture, sort of distilled and anglicized. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, there was uh, there are times when uh, I just I couldn't quite believe that it was working as well as it do, as it did, just sh- 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 with the sheer filmmaking sort of imagination, as well as you know, and the especially the sound design being so good. Oh yeah, and in fact, I almost feel bad revealing who the voices who who are playing the voices on the phone are because uh, too late, I already did it. We, we, we both did, and and uh, it's. You know, that kind of because you're not, you know, they don't there's no credits. I don't think I don't think you see lock on the screen until the very end. But, um, uh, you know, not knowing who it is, uh, you know, you create your own pictures in your mind. And it's, you know, it's it's almost a radio play on the screen. You know, it's almost sorry, wrong number. You know, although none of the wrong numbers are wrong, everybody has the right number. Unfortunately for Locke, as he's trying to focus on the road and and uh, you know, guiding his uh, his assistant through this incredibly complex process of pouring a concrete foundation for a gigantic uh, skyscraper and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, you have to do a, a little bit of work yourself watching this film. I mean, it's not hard to follow or understand, but you're going to find yourself. You know, almost yelling at the screen, like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, if you if you on this if you're weighing it on personal scales of like cost uh, of of what you're doing versus you know what you're leaving behind, you know, most people are probably going to think he's a fool uh, for doing what he's doing. So Hardy, like, through the power of his performance, has to convince you, the viewer, that he's actually doing the right thing, at least uh, in his, at least uh, on his terms. And that's not an easy thing to do because for much of the film, I'm going like, like, I would not be doing this trip. You know, I would be sticking to, to the home front. And, uh, but, but, you know, he's, he lays out how he feels and, and, uh, you know, what it is in his upbringing that is making him do what he's doing, um, which, of course, is not something that everybody will be able to identify with necessarily. But he, he kind of once once he kind of explains it, um, you know, what happened in his own childhood, 
you know, you start to understand him more. And I mean, you really get a feel for this character by the end of the film in, in ways that you often don't with a, with a movie that, you know, so-called thrillers and so on. Everybody kind of has a role to play. And usually it's, you know, making sure that the machinations unfold as they should. But here it's it's very intense and very focused. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I felt like I had a little trouble with and maybe because this of uh, in a film where so much felt fresh and interesting and different in terms of the the way it's constructed, the uh, the spirit of the father in the back seat. Here's someone that we can't see, yes. but he can. And he is having kind of an ongoing conversation with with this uh, with this paternal kind of spirit uh, who who he's who's giving him some grief and he's giving grief. Uh, and I'm not I wasn't 100 percent sure that that worked. What did you think? Uh I, it got better as it went along once you realized what was going on. That Not that he was being delusional or anything, but he was, you know, having this external monologue. And that might be more of it. That might be as the stagiest that it gets, mm-hmm. I think, are those moments. But I think, I think, I mean, I think they're there to underline, you know, why he's doing what he's doing. Because, you know, because he had a father who wasn't there for him and, and he doesn't want to be that guy. And, and so... I, I think they did about as good a job of externalizing it as they could have. Um, you know, it could have gone a lot worse by actually having a sort of phantom in the back seat or something like that. But by by sort of him looking in the mirror and just showing an empty back seat, at least lets you know that he's that he sees an image. You have to ma- just like the voices on the phone. You have to create your own image of what he's seeing, I guess, in his mind's eye. And uh, uh, it's it's that yeah, that's the most heavy lifting you have to do. I think over the course of this film is kind of be at peace with with him doing that but but it's it's a necessary tool i suppose to to really get into his motivations the f-bombing new york times bestsellers thug kitchen gwyneth paltrow's two-time co-author julia tertian the polite and proper great british bake-offs food stylist what do they all have in common they're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture and they've all been guests on the Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So here we are with Lends Me Your Ears and our Off the Shelf Volume 1 uh, conversation wherein I go into Stephen's library and choose a couple of movies. And he went into my library and chose a couple of movies. He grabbed uh, in that first segment, uh, Locke. I went back and I chose two films that are connected, but in a sort of subtle way by title, but an otherwise, I guess, in cinema history, uh, and I guess thematically, but watching them back to back made me realize that they are uh, very pretty loosely connected. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's a really interesting pairing because you, they have similar titles. 
they have similar thematic ideas, but they don't have the same plots necessarily, uh, and they don't come to the same conclusions. But um, but uh, tell us about these two films. They're separated by by about a decade or yeah. so. Yeah. Well, I'll start. They they the two films are Blow Up from 1966 and Blow Out from 1981. So the first one is Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, it's set in the UK in, in swinging 60s London, and it follows David Hemmings as a fashion photographer who's kind of cruel and demanding of his models. These models are all sort of underweight waifs wearing the bizarro fashions of the day. Very I mean, twiggy. Yes. Very twiggy. <laughs> Might as well be Barbarella. Um, <laughs> and the opening 20 minutes is the photographer. His name is Thomas. He, he sleeps in an East End DOS house and then drives away in his Bentley. It's this very, and then you see all these freaky students running around in the city distributing flyers. There's very much a self-conscious, like, this is the time in which we live kind of thing going on here. He's, 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 he's reaching for the zeitgeist with both hands. Uh, you know, and some, it's funny, when filmmakers do that, sometimes I think, well, it's just too obvious. But in a film like this, it actually works, mostly because I think he shoots on location. Like, I really enjoyed the location cinematography it's a gorgeous looking film yeah i don't think there are any sets like i like i don't think or studio sets um i think everything was i watched a lot of the supplements there's a wonderful uh, criterion edition of this film i think there's a you know some a standard regular dvd you can get as well uh just from mgm but the, the criterion of course looks looks amazing it just pops off the screen mm -hmm. and uh, antonioni is a his, his first uh, several films are in black and white, but when he switched to color, oh man, did he ever use color in in in, in interesting and and uh, sort of eye catching ways? Yeah, yeah. So so Thomas, uh, right away, I feel like he's saying something about youth and culture and class, and his anti hero travels between classes because he's this talented photographer and he do what he likes. He admires and captures the fleetingness of beauty, but every woman in the film is subservient to him. Now, when he's in, he goes to a London park and photographs a man in a suit and a woman being intimate. Uh, the woman tries to take his camera away. She's played by Vanessa Redgrave. Later, she meets him in his studio and tries to seduce him to get the film that's in the camera uh, while he con tries to convince her to be a model. Um, and then Thomas discovers when he develops the photos, and, and, he, and in a very deliberate way, we see his whole process of developing the photos. He sees that the photos in the park show something else. Now, um, I really enjoyed the way this film was shot. I really enjoyed the London locations, as I mentioned. It feels fairly critical of youth culture for the most part. I feel like, you know, and, and seeing it from now into the 60s, some of the gender politics are a little hard to swallow. I feel like the film treats the women the way the photographer does. He pushes them around and sometimes looks down on them. Uh, at one point, Thomas says, I'm fed up with those bloody bitches. I wish I had tons of money. Then I'd be free. Like, he's pretty loathsome. Um, <laughs> but the, the his character, of course, the journey of his character is him understanding that there are all these things going on that he has no control over. He ex tries to exert control over his work and these women in his life. But as we, we go through this, uh, you know, and he, he figures he he thinks he may have stumbled upon a murder. Um, his cocky authority gets undermined by all this stuff that's happening out of his control, and he starts to realize there are things that are more important than his sort of shallow life. Um, yeah, so that journey, I think, 
I, I, I enjoyed. It's a, it's a special, unique kind of film. I, I, you know, I, I've seen some of Antonioni's stuff. I've seen The Passenger, for instance. Yes. Uh, and I, I appreciate the way he moves his camera and the way he constructs his films. Um, I also felt there were parts of this film that were a little hard to watch, but, uh, but I was still glad to have, have, you know, watched it. Blow Up is one of those films that I, this is probably, I watched it uh, last night and uh, again, probably for the fifth or sixth time. I've seen this film a lot and I feel sort of guilty because there are some other Antonioni films I've never uh, been able, I haven't seen The Cleese uh, or The Eclipse. Um, there's some later films of his I haven't seen. I've only seen Laventura once uh, and that's an amazing film that I really need to revisit. Um, I, you know, I recently watched Red Desert, which is an interesting it's almost like a trilogy, Red Desert, Blow Up, and the following Zabriskie Point, which he made next. Uh, oh, we talked about Zabriskie Point. Which you talked about. Yeah. Um, which also, as you say, is kind of a zeitgeist-grabbing kind of film, uh, less successfully so, perhaps because it doesn't have the kind of story that Blow Up has. But uh, I find that this film, just every time I watch it, there are new layers uh, revealed to me. And, uh, and of course, it doesn't hurt to have an amazing array of uh, supplements that go into great detail about the you know the, the the scene in London at the time this film was shot the impact of Antonioni just simply being in London and everybody wanted to meet this hotshot um, you know Nouvelle Vague Italian film director um, you know whose films have been acclaimed and and you know this I think this one on the Palme d'Or that year um, you know the, the film had an impact even while they were making it and uh, and and then what it had to say about uh, you know, artists and, and visual arts and different ways of interpreting reality through through painting, through photography, you know, and in Antonioni's case, through filmmaking. And uh, in a sense, uh, Hemming's character is kind of a director. I mean, he's a he's a photographer, but you watch him uh, do his, his shoots and he's directing the models. And, you know, one shoot is very intimate, close up, and he's, he's practically making love to Verushka as he's, you know, just uh, shooting the camera up in her face and, and they're kind of clambering around in, front, in, the, in the in the studio and then another time he's got four models and he's just being very cold to them and, and just posing them and you know and I, I think I think Antonio is saying something about the different types of directors and, and directors and the fact that you know that the Thomas like like you say when you first meet him he's coming out of a, a of a of a DOS house like a you know a, a, an overnight shelter where he's been I think surreptitiously taking pictures of, of the people staying there and then later he shows them to his agent because I think he really wants to be an artist the 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 fashion photography is what pays the bills but he really wants to to capture life on, on film and, and, and get into galleries and, and that kind of thing. So he's doing these other projects on the side. Hence the, the, the series of photos in the park that he takes of Vanessa uh -huh. Redgrave and her, her unnamed, uh, Trister, I guess. Because he feels like this could be the end of that book of art that will give yes, him exactly. that, of art photography that will give him the credibility that he's looking for. And, and, you know, and when he's, when he's, going through the photos that he took in the park and he realizes that there's something going on there that he didn't see while he was taking the photos. And he, he's practically, you know, he's kind of storyboarding and editing and doing montage with still photographs. And in fact, the, the film kind of becomes a bit of a slideshow as he's, you know, posting the blowups and zooming in on details and finding out, uh, you know, trying to find out what actually happened in the park, uh, while he was taking his photos and, you know, so it happened right in front of his eyes and he kind of missed it. And, um, so, so, 
you know, and a lot of that stuff. I mean, the first time I just the first time I watched this film, to be honest, I I was like a teenager and I watched it because I heard the Yardbirds were in it, <laughs> and then that was I was like, I've never seen footage of the Yardbirds and they're in this movie. Awesome, I got to watch it. And then I, you know, I just I fell for the film. I just loved its portrayal of London at that time. Um, you know, certainly a very attractive cast. Varushka, Vanessa Redgrave is gorgeous. Jane Birkin shows up as one of a pair of young girls who want to be fashion models. And and uh, as you say, it's it's um, you know Thomas's kind of cruel and, and um, you know, horrible side comes out when he just kind of takes advantage of them. Uh, and uh, th- But it's also, you know, the scene that made the film fairly notorious at the time it came out. So, you know, the, the film might not have been as well known, perhaps. But, uh, yeah, I just, I just find there's so much going on in this film and so much to appreciate. And then, you know, I can look at different aspects of it. You know, I can focus less on the story, which is fairly nebulous. You know, he took photos of something, something happened. Uh, and Vanessa Redgrave wants the film back. It's kind of like the basic thrillery kind of thread, but of course, there's there's a lot more going on in terms of art and fashion, and and uh, and as we as we said, capturing a, a, a snapshot of a, of a particular time and place. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's just you know he, I think the thing I like most about the film in terms of his journey and the characters that he's he realizes by the end that he's out of his depth. Um, whereas in the beginning he felt like he, you know, you really got a sense that he was, he had control over every aspect of his life. And then that kind of cockiness is stripped from him. And, and that's probably the part of the story that I enjoyed the most. Like you say, the, um, the, the appearance of the Yardbirds and they really do. It's not just like a brief cameo where they're in the background. (laughs) They do a whole song. They do a whole song and they're right on stage there. And you get to see the young Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. And it's like, wow, look at these guys. Like, and they're they're pretty great, um, uh, you know. On 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 that kind of sidebar, um, interesting. They chose to sing a song called "Stroll On," which. I, I wasn't that familiar with, except for the fact that it's basically a rewrite of, of The Train Kept, Kept a Rolling by yeah. Tiny Bradshaw, oh, yeah. a song which uh, Aerosmith covered years later. And that's probably the version I'm most familiar with. But I was like, Jesus, it's exactly the same song. Yeah. So that's where that's where Paige got it when he started doing the same thing in Led Zeppelin, basically. You know, it started with the Yardbirds. And, uh, and, and this is right before Beck left the band. Of course, he went on to have an amazing solo career. Um, Beck and Paige, I think they only played in the studio. I think they only recorded one. One or maybe two songs at the same time and then he then Beck left and and Paige went on this very weird journey for their sort of last studio record Little Games but so this is like a, a snapshot of an amazing band at this weird pivotal time for them that didn't really last very long it was you know where, where one guy was going out and one guy was coming in and and uh you know and eventually that turned into Led Zeppelin and some way or another, which were initially called the New Yardbirds. But now we, we're going down a Yardbird rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> uh, interesting that Hemmings is so magnetic in this film and his leading part. And, you know, his later career, he didn't really have the kind of like comeback that no. like uh, some of the leading actors of the 60s had. Um, you know, people like Terrence Stamp got like a second act in in terms of being a leading man in in films later on. Hemmings uh, had a good career, but he was he became a character actor. Yeah, pretty much. Once his like good looking youth, you know, left him, he, he became a character actor and a lot of other things. And and he is a face who I, I can think of, you know, in various films as just kind of like a, a functionary or, a you know, or villain or something. But uh, but he yeah, he, I'm surprised that he given how how good he is in this, that he didn't, he wasn't able to quite hang on to that kind of, uh, um, above the title kind of, uh, fame. Yeah. It is kind of weird. He, he, 
I mean, at some point in the 70s, he moves to Australia and he's in a bunch of movies shot in Australia, which he also, I think, uh, he got into actually producing the films he was in at that time. And there are a bunch, there's a number of like oddball Australian films that he's in either as a star or as a supporting character that he sort of co-produced that, you know, you good luck finding a copy of those today. It's a very, he had a very unusual career and I don't know if that's the way he liked it or, you know, if he wasn't that big on stardom. I, and you mentioned Terrence Stamp and I think in one of the, um, one of the supplements, I think they mentioned that Terrence Stamp might've been Antonioni's first choice to play that character. And he just was, you know, this is the peak of his sixties fame and he just was not available. Um, I think it was a fairly long shoot too. I hear it went over and I just, he just couldn't be, make himself available for something that was going to take this much time because I mean, Antonioni really, you know, really planned and thought this thing out. Like there's one scene where I think when he goes to the antique shop, they actually painted the road a different color because he wanted it to, you know, the road leading up to the park, he wanted it to look a certain way. And they actually went out and painted the road, this kind of weird dark green color to kind of fade into the the park. Like, like he was, I don't know, following the yellow road or something. I don't know. But, but, um, but it, it was sort of a continuation of the, the obsession he had with uh, manipulating color in, um, in uh, Red Desert, which uh, I think was the previous film with Monica Vitti, which is uh, has a lot of thematic uh, uh, connections in terms of it's you know this this industrial landscape which we see and you know we see like new housing blocks going up to next to these like ancient Dickensian <laughs> row housing and stuff like that and and uh, Red, Red Desert has a lot of the same stuff where but but he was fascinated by these you know refineries and factories and vast um, you know treeless um, industrial mm-hmm. landscapes and stuff like that. And and there's a little bit of that here. There's more of it when he gets to the desert in Zabriskie Point, which is why I, I like the idea of those films as kind of a weird unofficial trilogy, you know, plus their use of color and so on. Um, but yeah, like I recommend Blowout. It's, it's uh, some of it, you know, like a lot of films of this era have not aged well. Obviously it was Swing in London, the, the beginning of, uh, this is before the summer of love when, when free love was taking, taking over and everything like that. And it's, it's hard to watch some of this stuff through a, through a modern lens, but, uh, it, it is a rewarding film and there's a, there's a lot of fun to be had here. Um, now the other film that it is connected by, at least by title anyway, and slightly by theme is Blowout. Now I've seen a fair amount of Brian De Palma, probably more than I've seen of Antonioni, but, uh, this was a real pleasure this yes. movie it it's is fun to it is the so cheeky uh the oh, the film opens where we're in a pov of a killer with a knife at a sorority house and there's a number of sort of prurient thrills to start off with he's <laughs> and then we pull back from all from this outrageous opening where he's you know there's murder and there's sex and masturbation and all this stuff going on and nudity and then we realize we're watching a movie in a movie where the sound guy, Jack, played by John Travolta, is he works on all these trashy pictures. Uh, and as an audience, it makes us immediately complicit in this sort of meta experiment going forward. It's like De Palma saying, hey, we all like to watch these violent thrills, admit it. Like, that's basically what he's doing. <laughs> like, from the start, he's slapping our faces and going, ha, hey, see what I did just there? Um and then, so uh, he goes out, uh, John Travolta's character, Jack, goes out and goes to a ravine to get some sound with his mic, very much like Thomas it did in in, uh, in Blowout, exactly, to, yeah. to just get some, some uh, do, you know, with his time off. And in the middle of the night, he goes out to this ravine, and there 
after he picks up some conversation and a toad and an owl, he witnesses a car go off a bridge and into a river and he pulls Nancy Allen's Sally out of the car. Uh, and we discover that uh, she's a prostitute and the man driving the car was a presidential candidate uh, and the political handlers don't want to get it to get out that he died with a hooker in the car. Yes. And then when Jack listens back to the tape, he starts to figure out that this might have been an assassination. Uh, <laughs> there's some, I mean, and it, it is, uh, this is a film that you just, you know how when you see a film where a filmmaker is in complete control over the material, this is one of those moments where I feel like De Palma is in complete control. He's doing exactly what he wants. He's introducing weird camera angles. He's he's bringing the color red in all sorts of interesting places. Like it's a very vivid looking film. It's a great looking film. Uh, and I can see the the Antonioni uh, inspiration in the visuals for sure, but also in the fact of this man who who has a gift in a particular creative industry discovering something that puts him in a lot of danger and, and that, that explodes his world in some ways, uh, in a way that he, in the end, discovers he actually has very little control over. And that's, I think, where it's, it's most like the previous movie. Yeah, the, the uh, in, in, he's working with sound instead of images, and uh, but then he he pairs uh, his sound to some images captured by the sleazy photographer who's trying to basically get a shot of the presidential uh, candidate with the uh, Dennis Franz. Yes, yeah, Dennis, a great performance by Dennis Franz is a total sleazeball um, who's basically just trying to get some blackmail photos to to uh, to kind of. Um, out this candidate uh, by his opponents, obviously, and uh, and but then but then he matches it with the the images, and there's uh, callbacks to the Zapruder film and and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, and so the they t the, the premise is similar. You know, Travolta's trying to use his gift in this case with 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 audio recording equipment to get to the bottom of what happened, as opposed to Thomas with his. Uh, with his camera and blow up, but, but then it introduces all these other elements. And of course the, the film is unmistakably De Palma's in terms of style, uh, the, the, the moving camera, um, the long shots, the, the, there's an overhead shot, which is kind of a signature thing of his, at least it was in the seventies up into the eighties where he'd, he'd shoot straight downward and then move the camera along. Um, I mean, he even does it in his comedy, get to know your rabbit with Tom Smothers. So, uh, it, it's certainly a, a shot that he's enamored of in a signature uh, moment. And, um, there's a shot inside the studio where he moves the camera oh, around three yeah, sixties yeah. again and again and again to and he just in the on the extra uh, materials in that that Criterion uh, uh, Blu-ray he talks about how it was he was trying to mimic the sort of idea of a reel by going around and around and around and uh, and it just becomes faster and faster and feels like you're you're kind of on a ride like on a, a you know and you're a little bit out of control it's it's a it's a really great technique it's not something that you you see very often in a in a feature film. Yeah, trying to light that must have been a nightmare. But uh, <laughs> but you're trying not to think about these things. You're just trying to enjoy the film. But you know, this is like the the fourth time I've I've seen it. So you start to to look in the corners and see what else is going on in the other parts of the movie. Um, and uh, you know, and and also in the I think in the interview, there's an interview on the Criterion edition with Noah Baumbach, and he talks about how a lot, some of this stuff was born out of conversations he had with his own sound men uh, working on previous films about trying to get fresh sound effects and so on, which is what Travolta's doing when he's out in the park uh, with his uh, sort of long extended uh, microphone. Um, 
and uh, and there's, he says there's even bits of dialogue that come directly from things that he said to his sound men over the years. You know, get new wind, as it were. <laughs> you know, after, when being told that it's just the standard library sounds get used over and over again. So he does bring some of his own experience into it as a filmmaker, and I, I like that aspect of it. The way that Antonioni brings his approach to art into Blow Up, um, De Palma brings his uh, filmmaking background into Travolta's life and uh, and how he operates in, in Blow Out. And then, of course, there's a lot of Hitchcockian stuff going on, as there always is, but but less maybe less obvious than in uh, films like Obsession and, and, uh, and his later... Um, or no, I guess it was. I guess this is right after uh, Dress to Kill. Yeah. I think that was the previous film. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd agree with you there, Stephen. I think uh, De Palma's obsession yeah. with Hitchcock <laughs> is very present here, as it is with so many. Of his I, I kind, I kind of feel that maybe it's filtered through. I think maybe he's like going more in a kind of Italian giallo Dario Argento thriller kind of direction, which is also already heavily influenced by Hitchcock. So I think maybe it's 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 filtered a bit because of, I mean this the scene at the start with the killer stalking the coeds in the in the sorority or in the in the dormitory, um, you know, with with the black gloves and the knife. That's pure Italian thriller uh, right. territory. Right. Fair um, enough. And uh, and then uh, at some point we even see like a black glove on the ground, and the black glove, for whatever reason, is like one of the main, you know, visual signatures of, of Italian thrillers in the 1970s. And uh, you know, th- there's certainly other elements uh, to be found. Uh, I think there's there's things like um, Bird with the Crystal Plumage by Argento. There's a scene where the star Tony Musante gets trapped between some glass doors, and he sees a murder happening, and he can't. He can't stop it, and I think uh, that's a real influence on uh, you know when Travolta can't uh, can't get to where something terrible is happening, and he, he can see it, but he's he's you know separated by distance and and uh, you know his own stupid plan, which goes horribly <laughs> awry later in the film. Um, and Travolta uh, is really good here. He, he is. He's quite good. I mean, I saw this when it came out. I actually went to the theater. Fourteen-year-old uh, me snuck into an eighteen-R-rated movie and saw Blowout in the theater. It was probably my first time seeing a Brian. De- I might have seen Carrie. Actually, I might have seen Carrie at this point. But because uh, I, you know, I was certainly well into Stephen King books and at this point. But um, you know, I, I certainly wasn't prepared for something like this. I don't know that I'd seen something with this level of violence and with this level of of you know frank sexual content and so on in on a big screen before so this is kind of a landmark film for me in a lot of ways and uh and it's it's great to re-experience it and see how good it still is like i was was kind of you know every time i watch it i kind of think is this going to feel like late 70s early 80s and some of it does mostly because of the pino Danaggio score uh a lot of the time who oddly enough also worked in italian thrillers obviously but worked with de palma on uh, carrie and other films Uh, maybe no obsession was uh, bernard herman but anyway they'd worked together before and so some of the some of the music is dates it more than the visuals, um, but it does have that great gritty, uh, you know, kind of urban. Uh, I guess they're in Philadelphia. Yeah, they are in um, Philadelphia. You know, but, yeah, feel, and, the, but, and the color red is so uh, substantial in this film. I, yeah, I, also also a very yellow kind of thing. I, I love this. My favorite scenes in the film are scenes of Den- uh, basically in the screenwriting and in the acting 
the scenes of Dennis Franz, Nancy Allen, who of course was De Palma's wife, uh, and Nancy Allen, you know, uh, had has had had a pretty great career, and she, she was in RoboCop and a number of other uh, films. She's very in the charming, era. Yes. very charming. And Travolta discussing the morality of murder and the profiting over it. Like they, <laughs> yes. there's a lot of scenes of them sort of arguing, like, what are we going to do now that we have this information? And it's a rare thriller that really explores the right and wrong of what's going on while it indulges in these sensational thrills. It's really offering up to the audience like, okay, this is what we know. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to just kind of put our heads down, take the money and ignore all this stuff because it's got nothing to do with us? Or are we going to actually do something about it? And uh, I I really love the ending, you know, on Liberty Day in Philadelphia and uh, and the final disposition of the scream. I just thought that was so great. It <laughs> oh, was so it's, tongue in cheek. It's one of the great... Uh, nihilistic endings uh, <laughs> that, that uh, 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 shakes me every time I, I yeah. see it. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say any more about that. And we haven't even mentioned John Lithgow, who yeah. is very young here. Like, it's, it's, I'm trying to think if I've seen him anything earlier than this. Um, I, I'm trying to think if he was maybe in, was he in World According to Carp? I, don't, I, I know he was in stuff. I guess he's in Obsession. So I guess he is in some earlier films of De Palma's even, because then he later shows up in Raising Cain in a starring role. But here, he's very young and extremely creepy. Like, as 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 the guy who's going above and beyond to fill his duties to his employers uh, in ways that are just insanely psychopathic uh he is so good in yeah. this film like uh and and but funny but also terrifying yeah and uh you know i i we, he really does uh, deserve us some some attention for that um i want to quickly just give a shout out to uh it we're recording this on the weekend that joker is the film that is in cinemas unusually in our podcasts we we connect a movie to a movie that we've both seen in this case i've only seen joker you haven't you're going to see I'm it going today. this afternoon yeah uh, i was not particular fan of the film but what is interesting the one connection today between the films and cinemas and and these films is that that uh there is a scene where characters come out of the cinema having just seen something and on the marquee Blowout is one of the movies there. <laughs> Blowout and uh, Zorro the Gay Blade. Um, so that points that puts Joker solidly in 1981. Um, another. Speaking of other movies, uh, I really enjoyed all the movie posters in the wall of the studio office in this. In oh yeah, this the, film. The, the Boogeyman and yeah, like some of them are actual movies, like Empire of the Ants and Food yeah, of the and Gods. The Boogeyman is a real movie too. Yeah, yeah, Squirm and the Incredible Melting Man. But some of them I think are fake. Fantasex, Island of the Damned, and Lord of the Triangle. Lure of the Triangle is one that stuck with me for a while. For <laughs> You have to see the film to, to see why, but anyway. Um, but we have one more film to do, and uh, we'll get to it right after this. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears for our final installment of our first off-the-shelf episode with Karsten and I picking a couple of titles off each other's video shelves and uh, either getting to see films we've been meaning to get to all along or things that just popped out at us because they look cool. And uh, in this case, this film falls into the latter category. It's uh, not a title I knew a lot about, but uh, uh, it was it was fairly recent. It's a thriller from Scandinavia, which I'm always fond of, uh, either in film or serial form. And uh, it's also uh, got a wicked sense of humor about it. So it, it seems to have everything going for it. Um, directed by Morton Tildum. I'm going to mangle these names. Um, who went 
on to make uh, The Imitation Game, yay, and uh, Passengers, not so yay. Uh, and it stars Askel Henny as uh, the titular headhunter, Roger. He, uh, he, he works for corporations, finding executives and placing them in uh, key positions. In this case, he's looking for the head of a new firm that, uh, that uh, provides GPS services or has a GPS product. And uh, by night, he's an art thief. <laughs> So it's it's already right off the bat. It's a fairly incongruous uh, kind of combo where he's like a high powered corporate headhunter, but uh, in his spare time he uh, picks up some spare change by stealing rare artworks, replacing them with uh, with replicas, and uh, and then selling them. Um, uh, quickly on the market, uh, one country over in I think Norway, or are they in Norway? They're in Norway. They're in they Norway, go, and he go goes to Sweden, to Sweden yeah, and yeah. Uh, and sells them with the the help of his uh, trusty um, security guard cohort, who's who's also a very interesting and fun character. Over, yeah, he over. also is able to to disconnect the uh, security systems of the houses where he he steals the paintings from. So it's he's got a whole system down. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very um, like kind of like Locke. I mean, maybe this is how we bookend this uh, this episode, but he's very good at uh, at controlling things and he does everything according but to the book and he's he's very um, procedural and exacting and uh, he's also kind of a jerk. Well, kind of a jerk. He's a lot of a jerk. He's a lot of a jerk. And yeah. uh, you know, he's having an affair um, on his beautiful wife um, with whom he does not want to have children uh, even though she wants to have a child and he's kind of holding her at bay. And um, and then uh, everything just starts to unravel when he's uh, looking for his next candidate for the GPS job. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting film. There's if, for a film that's 96 minutes long, Headhunters, uh, adapting the Joe Nesbo novel, uh, the crime writer who also inspired the catastrophic effort, The Snowman. Oh boy, um, is uh, it packs a lot of stuff in. I you know at, at one time it's kind of a heist thriller. Uh, I love that the the lead's name Roger Brown. It could be less Nordic name, um, <laughs> yes. you know, and uh, he is. He's in love with uh, his tall, gorgeous art gallery owner uh, wife, Diana, played by, and I, pronou- I apologize for the pronunciation here, Sono- Sinov Makodi Lund, uh, who apparently is a, uh, a film critic in real life and has never was never wow. acting, never acted before this film. She's really good, uh, and uh, but he treat he keeps her at arm's length and he treats her really badly. He just figures that she deserves or she wants the kind of lifestyle that he has to deliver through his thievery and his crime, but he's not seeing the fact is that she really cares about him and, and his behavior is pushing her away, especially the fact he's having an affair. Um, anyway, so what happens is Diana, his wife, meets a Danish former mercenary, Klaus Grieve, <laughs> played by Game of Thrones veteran Nikolai Koster-Waldau, who is terrific in this, um, who's now a tech specialist. Now, Klaus has a very rare Rubens Thought lost in the war. So when Roger plans on stealing this from Klaas with Ova's help, but things start to go wrong when Roger finds Diana's cell phone in Klaas's flat, suggesting that she's having an affair with him. And that's the first 20 minutes. Like, this <laughs> oh, is there's a lot so going on It's densely here. packed. Yet it, everything pays off in the film. Uh, it's incredibly funny and incredibly nerve-wracking because <laughs> just the, the, every situation that they set up. I mean, Klaus is kind of like an unstoppable Superman in, in, in a lot of ways. Like, he's it, he's not what he appears at first. He just seems like this amiable guy who retired early from a, from a firm that he created. Um, and then... Uh, but it turns out that he has a whole plan laid out, and when uh, and he's he's setting himself up to be the perfect candidate for this job, and um, 
I think Roger feels a little threatened by him and decides to uh, kind of give him the brush off, even though he is probably the perfect candidate. But he has uh, he, there's there's a lot of uh, subterfuge going on, and and when he senses that Roger might actually be a threat rather than an entryway to this gig. You know, everything kind of takes a turn and this this double plan of him, of Roger trying to steal the painting and Klaus uh, or Klaus uh, enacting his plan uh, kind of inter intertwine. It's amazing how how the pins are set up and how the film knocks them down one by one over the course of the film. It's uh, yeah, I, I just can't get over how much I enjoyed this film. Yeah, it is because it, it works on multiple levels. It's a comedy. It's a thriller. And it's a character study of a guy who who self-identifies as kind of a Napoleon complex. Like, he's short, yeah. so he has to overcompensate. Kind of like David Hemmings and blow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's our connection. There, Connective yeah, threads. There you go. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he can't quite get it together. Um, and, uh, and about halfway in, uh, there's a point where he's pulling all his clothes off and all his uh, his sort of status symbols and and he's he's completely transformed in the course of this movie in a way and it shows that he has genuine vulnerability. I mean, he is not a character who you like much in the beginning, but by the end, you really he just he just has. He, not only does he find ways to survive that none of us could possibly think of. I mean, this is a, a movie that really goes places you don't expect in ways that are both exciting and very funny. Um, you know, there is a, a body jump dumped in a lake that it turns out isn't dead, so it has to be taken somewhere else. Then a shootout follows. Then there's a crazy scene in an outhouse with a dog and a tractor chase, which is all played pretty straight. But it, if you, you feel like tonally, if they just pushed a little harder, it could be like a wacky comedy starring Gene Wilder. You know? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I wouldn't be shocked if somebody's optioned this for an English language remake. I don't. I mean, there there is a kind of Norwegian sensibility that, or Scandinavian sensibility that makes this very different than anything in English would ever be. But I I could see this working on some level. Um, uh, but you know, with the right cast and everything, but it, I think Til Tildum, in fact, who has gone on to to these Hollywood movies, has tried to option it for his own remake. Uh, I looked actually up online and discovered that there was some discussion about it in 2016, uh, but nothing has come of it since. So I don't know if it will ever happen. Headhunters turned into a Hollywood movie, but it would it would totally work. I was thinking about like Tom Cruise in the role, given he's he is sort of vertically challenged. Uh, but would he <laughs> would he put himself in a role where he is he, so unlikable, especially in start. Would he shave well, he, his head? Well, he's done it before. I mean, you look at Magnolia. So he, but he, not since then. Not yeah. <laughs> well, and Tropic Thunder. I don't know. Um, he well, he'd be starting off in that mode, but but certainly uh, moving through uh, some some different levels of having every aspect of his persona torn away <laughs> over the course of the film. But the, that's you know the complexities of it are what make this such an extraordinary uh, film. I was reminded uh, of a. Finnish, I think it's from Finland, uh, some kind of comedy thriller called Junk Mail, which starts out with this guy. He's like basically the worst mailman in, in um, oh, I want to, uh, anyway. Helsinki? Helsinki, yes. Worst, thank you. The worst <laughs> mailman in Helsinki routinely just throws mail away and doesn't always, you know, opens things and so on. And then, but then he eventually, of course, he opens the wrong letter, you know, something that reveals that something horrible is going down somewhere. And, he tries to go to that address and stop it from happening, and it gets caught up in a whole tangled web of intrigue, and, and you know, and is again way over his head as Roger is here in uh, in Headhunter. So I don't know where you would find a copy of Junk Mail, but if you can seek that one out, that would be a good double feature of uh, strange black comedy 
Scandinavian thrillers that go places you don't expect them to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, I wanted to say also in this film, in Headhunters, the violence is, it doesn't show up right away, but when it happens, it's oh gory and brutal <laughs> in in in, un, in very graphic ways. This is something that just give people a heads up that uh, that that I I was kind of, one of the things that really stayed with me with, from having seen the film when it first came out back in 2011 was that that intensity. Uh, and it, it really changes the, you know, in, in a way that, well, there's a lot of things about this movie that are unexpected, but that's one of them. There's a moment that reminded me of Midsommar, if, if that gives you a point of reference for anything. <laughs> to uh, bringing it back to Scandinavia. Yeah, exactly. about wraps it up for this edition of Lends Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed this off-the-shelf uh, edition of the show. Uh, hopefully you'll uh, be able to seek out some of these titles. Uh, I know that uh, I think Blow Up and Blow Out are probably available on the Criterion channel if you can't find a physical copy and, and Locke is out there in the land of streaming. Headhunters might take a little more effort, but uh, definitely worth checking out and hunting down yourself if you can. Um, my name is Stephen Cook and uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And my name is Karsten Knox, and I am uh, available online through my blog title, which is Flaw in the Iris, on Twitter and, uh, yeah, on Facebook, too. We have a Patreon that you can go to and support if you feel like uh, throwing us a few coins every now and then. That would be great to help us uh, put this all together. Uh, we, uh, we would love it if you could go on iTunes and leave a review of some description. Five stars, of course. Uh, why leave any less? And uh, also, um, you can find us. Uh, we have our own Twitter account and we're on Facebook as well where you can uh, see what we're up to and leave comments and so on. So uh, I think that's about it. I just want to thank uh, the folks here at CKDU 88.1 FM who air us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also uh, the Village Soundcast Network who get the show up online and all your streaming and podcast platforms and, and put the, the music on and make it sound real purdy. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.